Hello, and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills, strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. Today, I have the deepest pleasure to introduce you to an incredible man, Atish Ram. Atish is a well-known and respected local actor, producer, and filmmaker, and has done so much to give back to our community. He's been cast in classics such as MacGyver, Wise Guy, and Neon Rider, and has appeared in numerous national commercials. Atish is also the producer of Zindagi, a weekly magazine show on Shaw Multicultural Channel that launched in 1997 and is still running 23 years later. He produced and was the overall visionary, heart, and host of the annual A World of Smiles Telethon in support of BC Children's Hospital, which ran until 2013 and raised over $2.5 million, and was born out of his own experiences as a parent of a child with a rare health condition. The telethon then transformed into a Night of Miracles gala, which continues to support children in BC and is now in its 12th year. Atish is a South Asian immigrant who has experienced racism in multiple settings, including the workplace. And when he was just 22, had the courage to speak up against his employer for discriminatory practices ultimately resulting in a court ruling which received national attention and is now discussed in law departments at major universities such as Simon Fraser University and the University of British Columbia. Atish is a husband, a dad to three, and most recently a COVID-19 survivor. We'll be talking about his 54-day hospital stay in the ICU with COVID-19 and the day he was told to call and say goodbye to his wife and kids. The cruel acts of racism he faced as a young immigrant child, being robbed three times and then eventually initiating a three-year lawsuit against his employer, McDonald's, due to discrimination he faced, and how his passion for philanthropy grew out of his own experiences with having a child with a chronic health condition. He has a truly inspiring story of personal and workplace resilience, and I'm so honored to have him join us today. Atish, welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. My goodness, 11 years long since we've actually seen each other face to face. And hats off to you. You've done very, very well. I've been following you, not as a stalker, but as a person who is inspired by what the, the kind of work that you've been doing. Oh, well, 
Well, wonderful. And it's kind of cool to be on the other side of interviewing you rather than the other way around, uh, which is, of course, how we met. Uh, 15 years ago, you interviewed me for a documentary you were producing on domestic violence. So I love that I get to put you in the hot seat today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Atish, let's dive right into the topic of the century, COVID-19. And yes. let's rewind uh, to June of 2020. Um, I, of course, met you uh, 15 years ago, um, but haven't seen you up close and personal for um, over a decade. Um, and I remember back in June of 2020, my goodness, much to my shock and sadness, I turned on the evening news and there you were on TV, not about a film project or a fundraiser, but because you had at that point been one of the longest hospitalized patients in BC for COVID-19, having spent eight weeks in the hospital. Yes. Tell me about when you first knew you had the coronavirus and the events that led up to your hospitalization. Well, you know, this this happened actually in mid-March when the pandemic was actually just starting to happen. Um, so I was quite, you know, I'm very informed with news and, and what's going on around the world being in the media. Um, so I was quite vigilant about, you know, telling my mom, I was telling my kids and, you know, we were wiping down everything and, you know, on a daily basis. So I was quite vigilant. But at that time, there was nothing set up in terms of, uh, you know, social distancing and mask wearing and stuff. So because it was fairly new at the time, mid-March, right? Um, I just happened to take a trip up to uh, the grocery store to pick up a few things for dinner that night. And the uh, lady behind me was kind of coughing and, and she was with two other guys and, and she was joking about COVID and I didn't think much of it. Came home. Uh a few days later, I think maybe about four or five days later, I started complaining to my wife about her cooking. And I said, you're not mm -hmm. putting enough spices in this and that, whatever. And uh, then the sense of smell and taste actually was the one that kind of got me at first. Right. But again, I didn't think nothing of it. But after 10 days, I started getting a fever. Uh, and when I started getting a fever, I phoned up my uh, the cardiologist clinic at Royal Columbian Hospital. And I said, look, I said, um, you know, this is what's happening, you know, getting a fever. They said, oh, just take Tylenol. And I did that for about four days. And so this is like four days later, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, you need to take me to the hospital. I just want to get checked out. So I did go to the Royal Columbian Hospital. They did a chest X-ray. They found out that I had a little bit of pneumonia in my left lung. They basically said, well, since you're here, we, we, should, we should do a COVID test. Hmm. So they did a COVID test because they said that we're required to do a COVID test with every patient that comes in. So they did that. And I, again, I didn't think nothing of it. And the doctor goes, okay, well, you know, here's the prescription for my antibiotics. Go home and, um, you know, follow up with your uh, GP in a week. And I came home and that was a Thursday. And then Friday, the Saturday morning, I got a call from my GP. And he said, look, Atish, you got COVID. And, wow. I, and I was shocked. I was like, what? And I just kind of, they said, you got to self-isolate. Your whole family has to self-isolate. And we did that. But within four days, the fever got so bad and my breathing got so bad that I could barely talk. And my my daughter actually panicked and she she phoned for his health and she said, look, you know, my dad can't even talk. And wow. they got me on the phone and they said, look, you need to go to the hospital now. And that was the beginning of my uh, ordeal. And I got My goodness, like, so of course we rewind to, you know, March 11th, 2020, the pandemic is announced. And, and as you said, I mean, w none of us had any information at that point, right? No guidelines, no regulations, no rules. And here you are out grocery shopping, right? Doing a basic, yeah. 
necessity of day to day. At what point did it start to enter your mind that ah, this may actually be something more serious? Well, it didn't actually. Uh, I just thought maybe I'll be in the hospital for a week and I'll get treated and I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be out. And I was expecting, you know, like, so one Monday when I went to the hospital uh, again, you know, and they admitted me and, um, you know, my oxygen saturation was kind of low. It was, I think it was 80 or something like that. Right. And I didn't understand any of this stuff. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, and then they took me from emergency, admitted me. And I spent uh, maybe three days there, four days there. And I think, oh, well, no big deal. I'll be probably out in a week, uh. right? But lo and behold, my, my condition got really, really serious. And it was a really a, a wonderful nurse, Monica. You know, she recognized me from the television show that she's watching uh, my Zindagi show, right? And she kind of raised the red flag and said, you know, this guy is really serious. And then they had the doctors come up. My third day, the doctors rushed up and they kind of assessed me. Now, mind you, at this point, you know, you're in a room by yourself. You're not, um, the nurses are not coming in because mm-hmm. they're scared to come in. Uh, so they're watching you from a window, Right. Um, and they rushed me down to ICU and I had, uh, gotten really, really bad. Right. And then I said, okay, this is kind of serious now, but then I spent the whole weekend, like this was the, uh, um, Easter long weekend, good Friday, that whole until Monday. And then I kind of went better. And then I got back up to uh, COVID ward again and I figured, okay, well, you know, uh, I'm going to be probably going home in about a week. Right. And then that week deteriorated uh my body just deteriorated the lungs had gotten so bad and it was it started getting filled with pneumonia and wow. basically uh, uh, the following sunday i was screaming and i called the nurse and her and this nurse andrea was a wonderful nurse comes rushing at three o'clock in the morning and, and she looks at my vitals and she, again she called a code and the doctors came up and they rushed me down to icu and that's when i knew it was very very serious You ended up being in ICU twice, and, and you've talked about your lowest point being about 10 days in when you went into ICU for the second time. And you were at that point told that you may be intubated yeah. and in a coma for up to a month. And you yes. were told to call your family. Um, this was the day. This was the day that I got rushed down to the hospital. And, I'm sorry, down to the ICU. And it was basically the Monday. And April 21st, I remember that date. And basically I said, um, uh, I, I, you know, they were assessing me, they had me hooked up to IVs and several IVs in my arm, like three different IVs in my arm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all these machines and everything. But I was kind of familiar with all these machines, you know, being fundraising for Children's Hospital, I was aware of all these equipment, so that was good. And I, I was able to read the monitors and understand the monitors, and my blood pressure wasn't very good. My heart rate wasn't good, and I can see that I was in trouble a little bit. And at about five o'clock in the afternoon, in the evening, I asked the nurse and I said to him, I said, look, you know, can I get a glass of water? Like I hadn't eaten anything, I hadn't nothing, and I felt like I, I needed to, and I could barely talk, and they had put this high flow oxygen on me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in my nose, so I would I would be 
I kind of be not being able to breathe on my own. It was helping me breathe. And I could barely talk, right? So basically he goes out, asks the doctors, he comes in, he holds my hand, and he had the saddest look on his face. And he basically looked at me, he said, I can't give you uh, any uh, anything to drink, Mr. Ram. And I said, oh, why not? I'm really thirsty. And he goes, look, <clears throat> held my hand. He said, do you have any family? And I said, yeah, I do. I have a wife and, and three kids. And, uh, and, and he goes, okay. He said, listen, he said, you know, you need to talk to them. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, he said, we're going to intubate you tonight. So that's why we can't give you anything to eat or drink. And, uh, and I said, what does that mean? And he goes, well, basically, he explained what that was to put a tube down. And he said, you're going to be in a coma for about a month. You're not going to be able to talk. Wow. But he said, but he said, you're very, very serious. Uh, and he says, listen, you know, you need to talk. He, and he goes, and he, was, he couldn't even tell me. And I knew by the look on his face that that this was very, very bad, you know. And and he basically said, listen, he said, we're going to sedate you. When you're ready to talk, let us know. You can talk to your family, you know, for about 10 minutes. That's probably the most you're going to be able to talk. Um, but when you're ready, you let us know. And I just laid there in shock. And I'm thinking, I may not even wake up. I can imagine that that moment is, I mean, terrifying to say the least and probably imprinted on your head and heart forever. Yeah. What is going through? What are what are all the thoughts that you're having in those first few minutes? What are the what are you thinking? What do you I mean, my goodness, this call, I want to know. I, I mean, where do you even start that phone call with your family? First of all, I just laid there for about three hours until about eight o'clock. I laid there and I just started pondering and I and I was getting all these mix of emotions. Okay, is this it? This is it for me. And I started talking to God and I'm saying, is this how you're gonna let me die? I'm gonna die alone in this room? After all the things that I've done in this community and helped out so many, so many good things that I've done with, with the children's hospital and fundraising and everything, whatever, this is my, is this what you're going to do? This is, I can't even be with my wife. I can't be with my kids. I can't say goodbye. So I was, I was at one point it was anger inside me. Why am I in this position? What have I done wrong to be, to end up like this? Mm. So the blame was happening, you know, to me. And I'm trying to think, what have I done wrong? And then on the other side, I'm thinking, you know, I was, I was feeling comfortable. And all I thought about was, was, the work that I have done and how many people that I was able to help and how many lives I was able to touch through the the, uh, the telethon and, and the fundraising things that I've done and the, the show that I've done, community service that I've done, I was able to see the good of everything. And I was accepting the fact that, okay, well, at least I'm going to go. And if I'm gone, I'm leaving behind a legacy and I know I've helped, helped a lot of people. The regret that I had the regret that I had was I wasn't able to do, you know, that I was being cheated because of all the good that I've done, I can't see my, I won't be able to see my daughter graduate from uh, from university. I'm not going to be able to see any of my kids' weddings. You know, these were the regrets. And then I thought about how much hurt am I going to put on my mom and my family and the people that I'm going to leave behind. So I was more concerned about what I hurt I'm going to leave other people when I'm gone and, and those were the things that were going in my head. And then finally, about 8 o'clock, about 8.15, I took the nerve and I said, I texted my wife and I said to her, I said, listen, 
I know you're not going to like this, but I need to talk to you. It's something very serious. And I need to um, talk to you guys, get the kids together. I need to explain a few things, but I need you, you guys to all gather together. Oh my goodness. And yeah, we'll pause you there for, for a minute, um, Atish. And I, you know, I think as you're speaking, um, I mean, first of all, those three hours must have felt like a lifetime. Um, your past life is flashing kind of in your mind, your future life. And as you've been speaking, I, you know, many of us have heard since the pandemic came um, kind of metaphors around grief reactions. And I think the rapid speed that you went through that initial shock and then anger and then sadness and even bargaining. And then so quickly, my goodness, within hours moving to what sounds to be an acceptance of the situation as it was. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife didn't text me back and she usually responds right away and she didn't text me back, but we, we were able to, uh, get on the phone and, and do FaceTime. Thank goodness for technology. Oh, right? geez, yes. And I was able to, to, you know, FaceTime them real quickly. And I just basically said to my kids how proud I am of them. I uh, talked to my son, Ryan. I told him I'm proud of him and I want him to live his life serving others. Make sure you give back to the community no matter what you do. Um, and uh, apologize to my wife for leaving her the way I am leaving her she couldn't even talk she was and they were all I was crying on my end they were crying in their end I couldn't speak very much you got to remember I have this high flow oxygen going so I'm struggling to speak as I'm saying these things and then my daughter just looked at me and she goes no I go you know I go I'm so sorry I said I know I've given you guys a great life but the only regret the one regret that I have that I had control over was that I wanted to take you guys to my homeland, which is Fiji Islands. Mm. And I wanted to show you where I was born. And I wanted to show you the history. And that was one of my dreams to do that for you guys. And and I'm so sorry I wasn't able to do that. And she just angrily just said, okay, you stop it, she said. She said, you stop it. You said, you you better get better. You come back. You're going to see me graduate from university. You're going to come back and you're going to take us to Fiji Islands. You're going to give me away at my wedding. And she wouldn't have it. What a feisty daughter! And my goodness, uh, and how old? How old is she? She well, I was able to come home and celebrate her 19th birthday. She was 18 at the age of the time. My good, what a wise little 18-year-old! So here she is. You know, you you are within hours, kind of coming to terms with what you think may happen, and in, in a very yeah. real likelihood, as we of course know. And here she is, <laughs> saying, mm-hmm. "No way, Dad. This is not an option." Um, no. How did that? You know, we think of. Oh my goodness, resilience through through your ordeal. How did that play a role in her attitude and her propelling you to shift the way that you were thinking? Well, the first thought that came into my head was this girl's gonna go places. And this girl's <laughs> this girl has got the fire that I have inside me. And I've realized that I had passed on what I had burning inside me, the the, the that resilience, the 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 do not take no for an answer attitude, right? And and I was proud to see her do that. But they all, that also motivated me. That motivated me to fight even harder. Mm. And I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to let him down. And that was a kind of a turning point for me. I said, if she believes in me that much, 
then I have to believe in me that much. Wow. Right. And, and I need to do this. And I said, I will fight, you know, to the, to my last breath, but I am going to make it and I am going to get through this. And that was, that was pretty much the pivotal point. My goodness. And so you hang up the phone. I mean, how do you even say that goodbye before you hung up the phone that after that conversation? I knew that I had to turn my attitude around and I had to keep them at ease and say, oh, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'm getting taken good care of and everything, whatever. And at that point, I couldn't speak anymore. And Mm -hmm. I told them I love them. I said, I love you guys. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I need to rest now, whatever. Right. And and I was kind of kind of be a little bit happier and motivated and positive because I didn't want them to, you know, I don't know how they're going to sleep tonight. Right. Mm-hmm. Thinking about it. And I found out later on, they really didn't even sleep. Um, and then I, and I couldn't speak anymore. Uh, and then I, I hung up. And then the next thing I did was I text my wife and I said to her, I said, you know, I said, okay, I go in the next few messages I'm going to send you is going to be uh, what I need you to do when I'm gone. So mm-hmm. here I'm planning my funeral. Pretty wow. much. And then I passed out and she never responded. Right. Uh, she, so she was, she was willful. She's got the fire that your daughter has. Yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't accepting that. And she usually texts me back right away uh, or within minutes, but she never, she never texts me back. So then you go to sleep and let's continue because you, I go to you know, sleep. by the grace of some God were yeah. end up not being intubated. Well, here's, here's the, here's the, uh, the, the thing that kind of baffles me is, uh, you know, I hadn't slept. I, I was sleeping an hour at a time or two hours, whatever. So, and this is the first time after 10 days um, or 14 days in, in there, I basically went to sleep um, and I passed out and I, and I didn't wake up. And the next thing you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and two gentlemen walk into my room with an x-ray machine. These are x-ray technicians, right? Mm. And the two guys walk in and they're both, you know, wearing the hazmats and everything, whatever they come in and they go, he goes, Mr. Ram, you know, we're here to do x-ray and everything. And they gently kind of lift me up and they put this x-ray thing behind me. They started taking the x-rays and stuff with my chest. And then they basically, the one guy looks at me and holds my hand and he says, Mr. Ram, you know, uh, are you, uh, do you practice Hinduism? I go, well, yeah, you know, I, I grew up, like that you know i don't know much about it whatever right but i grew up with you know I, i'm a religious person because you believe in god i said yes i do i have faith in god and he goes okay and he goes listen he goes can i do a prayer for you uh. i said okay so he holds my hand and this guy does a prayer for me and he does two prayers in complete sanskrit wow this guy is a white guy okay he's a caucasian guy He's from Poland. I asked him what his name was. Yeah. He said, I'm Eric from, Pol- uh, from Poland. And I go, how do you know how to speak this Sanskrit language? He goes, well, I've traveled all over um, India in the Himalayas and, and Buddhist temples. And this is the prayer that you do for people, um, you know, to bring them life, you know. And he said, you need to do this prayer 108 times a day. So yeah. I didn't understand this prayer. But later on, I found out what this prayer meant when I got out of the hospital. And he left. And at that point, I said to myself, oh, you know what? I'm going to make it. This is a sign. This has got to be some kind of a spiritual intervention or sign. And at first, I thought I was dreaming. I thought, I, I, At first, I thought I uh. had left this world. And here's this guy coming and talking to me in, in, in the Sanskrit. Hindi, My goodness. I don't even understand. Right? 
And then at eight o'clock in the morning, the nurse comes in and he says, she goes, she goes, uh, yeah, we're going to take you down and get your x-ray done. I said, well, somebody already came in and did the x-ray. They go, no, no, nobody came here to did the x-ray. We're going to take you down to get a CT scan at 10 o'clock. And I was, then I was really confused. I mean, you're sedated, right? A bit. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah. I mean, how with it are you feeling at this time? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? I woke up thinking, oh my God, I am not intubated. I've made it to another day and I couldn't understand why. That nurse that had, uh, was the night, the, there the night before had already gone. So this is a new nurse now. And they get me down to do the CT scan. They brought me back up in the afternoon. The nurse comes in and, and I said to, I said, what's going on? Like, you know, uh, and, and she goes, Mr. Ram, she said, your x-ray, we just did a CT scan and your x-ray we got back. Both your lungs are covered with ammonia. She said, it looks like somebody's taken shattered glass and just shoved them in your lungs. Wow. She goes, your lungs are completely white and you're pretty much drowning in your own uh, fluids. So, so you you're are breathing on your own. So here you are being able to breathe on your own. And well, no, I, I had the high flow oxygen happening. So right. I was being, you know, I wasn't intubated, but I had the high flow oxygen going. But it's, for some reason, I still don't understand today who made the decision not to intubate me. Because had they did intubate me, I probably wouldn't have made it. Because my lungs were so bad and the, there was so much fluid and so much pneumonia in both my lungs that they probably decided not to intubate me because, you know, that's putting a pipe down there, right? right. Um, but for some reason, my that after that day, I, my vital signs were kind of going up. I'm looking at the monitors. My blood pressure was kind of going up a little bit, you know, and, and the, it's kind of the numbers were kind of normal looking for me. Um, and okay, so I'm getting better. But then, you know, it was up and down. Like one day I'd be good. Another day I'd be down. It was like a struggle, you know, for the next six weeks, it was like, it was it was pretty bad. It was horrible. Yeah, so you were you were hospitalized for 54 days total. And, mm -hmm. and you know, if we take a look at, at history, of course, which we can learn so much from, we know from the SARS epidemic that started in 2002 that nearly one third of people who were quarantined struggled with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder or depression. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we know from the past that um, having been exposed to someone diagnosed with SARS or even knowing someone diagnosed with it um, increased the likelihood of PTSD or depression symptoms. Um, now we also know as healthcare providers um, that isolation precautions, which of course are the gold standard recommendation here for COVID-19, might also increase patient psychological vulnerability and, and make people feel tainted or unclean or even undeserving of attention. And so what was your experience, Atish, like with respect to the traumatic stress, um, low mood or depression, um, and navigating dealing with the scariest time of your life while isolated? Well, spiritually, I felt that I was going to make it after what I had experienced. Mm -hmm. um, mentally, it was taking a big toll on me because the nurses would come in. I The only thing I can recognize with the nurses was their eyes. Uh, even though they had a goggle and fa a face shield on, uh, every part of their body was covered from head to toe because they had to, right? And they would only come in the morning, give me medications, do my vitals, and they would leave. And then lunchtime again, and then at dinner time again, right? So I had, didn't have any human contact. 
thank goodness for social media, I was able to call and do FaceTime every night about nine o'clock. I would talk to my my family, but some days I couldn't even talk. So that kept me going, right? Um, and the doctors would talk to me through iPad. They wouldn't even come in the room because that's how serious it was. Mm-hmm. So it, mentally it was taking a lot of toll on me because I was alone and I felt like I was imprisoned. And the depression kicked in as well. So I was going through a lot of depression and there was times that I would phone my wife and she, she'll say, well, how are you doing? I said, you know, I, it's torture. I feel like giving up. I really, really felt like I need, I can't suffer anymore. I need mm. to go. Right. So, but there was not a lot, there wasn't a support for mental, uh, you know, that, I mean, one time the doctor came in and said, you know, how are you doing mentally? And I said, well, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting through, you know, um, at one point, you know, and I would watch the daily news as well. At one point, the nurse comes in and, and she wanted to take my iPad away. And I said, why is that? And she goes, no, she goes, listen, she goes, you can't watch these depressing stories about COVID and everything. You need to start watching things that are happy. So I started watching Russell Peters and comedy shows. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you you live and breathe media through your career. And of course, you know, those early months, right? March, April, mm-hmm. May, we're mm-hmm. just learning so much. All of us were bombarded I and mean, continue to be, but certainly at that time bombarded with media. And there were so many competing and confusing messages, right? And, and did you find that that gave you a sense of control to know what was happening or conversely, did it have that impact that the the nurse who wanted to take your iPad away was worried about? Yeah, I was more, I wanted to be informed because this is so new that nobody was telling me anything, right? And I wanted to understand more because, you know, I'm kind of an inquisitive person. I need to know things. I need to have knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So the nurses were not saying anything. Doctors were not saying anything. They weren't telling me results and they were taking my blood out every morning and every night. And I would say, okay, you know, like, is my hemoglobin count okay? Because you guys have drawn so much blood. They would take three vials of blood from my left arm and three vials of blood on my right arm each day, right? And I was worried about that, but there was a lot of complications that were happening. I started having internal bleeding. I started, you know, having a lot of, like my blood pressure would drop and then they'd had to do uh, an incision in my arm to, 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 I think they stuck a needle in there to measure my blood pressure from the inside because the uh, blood pressure cuff wasn't giving accurate readings, right? So there was a lot of these complications they were doing. I was asking a lot of questions, but I, so I think it was basically watching the news and watching was giving me information that I wasn't getting from the doctors Mm. or the nurses, but I wanted to be informed of what's going on because I didn't understand this virus and what it was doing to people. And I was scared too, because there was a lot of people dying, especially when you start started seeing what was happening in Italy and England. And, and then I, and my cousin would phone me from England. He was the only person that I would talk to. Right. The one thing that really, really bothered me a lot mentally was I was not, I didn't want my mom to know. Mm. And I had told my, my wife and my sisters, I told, I told my wife, I said, I don't want to get a call from anybody because I don't want to get stressed out and I don't want to be talking to anybody, just you. So you can communicate what's going on on a daily basis to them, but I don't want them to, my mom to know. We had just lost our dad a few years ago. She was still grieving. We were all grieving and I didn't want her to to be depressed, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't tell her. And Mother's Day was really hard for me because I wasn't able to call her. And I told my daughter and I said to her, I said, you know, I I need to call my mom. You know, she hasn't heard from me in in the last six weeks. And uh, my daughter goes, no, dad, you can't talk to her. She'll know by your voice. She's going to know something's up. So don't call her. 
And I didn't, and it was hard for me. What was, Atish, the the turning point for you? So when you kind of started to near the end of that roller coaster ride over that 54 days, when did you start to feel the turn for the positive? Well, I think one of the other lowest points in my life was when about six weeks in, they basically tried to get me. I had lost 35 pounds. They got me out of bed and they tried to get me to walk. And I, I, I took three steps and I realized I can't walk. And I broke down and I started to cry. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is my life now. Mm-hmm. I have to be in oxygen all the time. I can't even walk. You know, I can't even, I can't do anything, you know. And this is not who I am, right? And I was really, really at the low point. And then this lady nurse comes in. Her name's Katrina. And I remember her. And she comes in and she's so joyful. And she just sat sat down and she's the only nurse that would have conversations with me. Mm. And then she started to sing to me. And she would sing, country road, take me home. You know, and and this, I would do the other line, and she as she's making my bed, and she would talk to me and everything. That was the turning point because here's a nurse that really took the time, and 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 would converse with me. And I found out a few days later, like she was with me for about three days, and then you know, and the next week later again she was there. And I and she goes, oh, Mr. Ram, you're doing much much better. You know, I was able to get up and go and sit down. I was able to take a few steps. I was doing much better. She goes, Mr. Ram, she said, you're doing really, really good. And I said, well, you know, I think you've been helping me. And she goes to me, okay, Mr. Ram, she goes, I want to ask you something really, really, uh, you know, you you can't say no. So you have to tell me yes. I said, okay, yes. Right. And she goes to me, she goes, I want you to go and have a shower. And I said to myself, oh my God, how am I going to do that? I can't even mm. get up, walk up to the bathroom in, in a walker. And she, she goes, you know, you can do it. And I know you can do it, so you can do it, and I'm going to be there with you 100%, so don't worry. And I did. I struggled a lot. It was it was pretty, pretty painful because I couldn't breathe and, and, and the steam and everything, whatever. And and it made me feel so good having to shower, right? And I was, and I said to her, I said, you know, why are you doing this to me? You know, and she goes, look, you have the capacity to do this. You can do this, Right. And the reason I sing to you is because I need you to talk. I need you to sing. It works your lungs. Ah. So she was help. She was helping me slowly, and she would sing to me just to get. And she wouldn't tell me why, but at the same time, she was helping me. And she was, you know, I love this woman. This, this, uh, you know, Katrina. I'll never forget her. My that goodness, my, that was my turning point. Wow. I mean, how how beautiful, and and just really speaking to the. Power, right? We are fundamentally social creatures, and and one of the most bizarre, surreal, strange, terrifying things about the coronavirus, of course, has been the social distancing that we've done. And you're describing mm-hmm. someone who believed in you, that gave you that, instilled that hope, right? When we feel mm-hmm. we have nothing to draw on, and that propels you. And and what a beautiful example of the small interactions that 
those in the healthcare um, community can have to anyone that's that's struggling. Um, and a big shout out to Katrina, my goodness. Oh. Atish, I, I, you know, we think about the pandemic and on some levels we see the pandemic uniting people in this kind of shared sense of we're all in this together. Um, yet at the same time, uh, we've equally seen it being quite polarizing. And so if there's one thing that you wish the general public understood better from the perspective of someone who's been seriously unwell with COVID, what would that be? You got to keep fighting. You know, you got to keep fighting. It's so hard. You know, I've, I've, I've been through a lot of stuff in my life, but, you know, this is something that we can't control. We, we can control some way now because we know so much. So in order to control it, we need to follow the guidelines, right? And if you're sick, you got to keep fighting. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people are not as lucky as I am. And some people don't even get as, as sick as I was able to get sick. But but know the fact that this virus can attack anyone at any time and it doesn't see how wealthy you are and what nationality you are, what religion you are, what color skin you have. It's a virus, it's science, right? How it affects- It does, doesn't discriminate, right? It and doesn't discriminate, yeah. yeah. I would say, you know, keep fighting. I mean, you gotta fight, but Yes, we are social distancing, and that's very important. If we social distance, we're going to protect one another. But at the same time, just remember, think of the time that you're going to be able to hug your family again. Mm -hmm. I thought of that when I was in that hospital for two months all by myself. I, you know, I get mad and I get angry when I see people, you know, well, I can't stay away from my friends or whatever. You know, start, try staying in a room by yourself for two months with not having any human contact whatsoever with your loved ones, right? And if you can get through that, you can get through anything, but you are protecting your loved ones. You're protecting everybody. But think of that, that light at the end of the tunnel. When we're, we're you know, when we put this behind us, we are going to be able to socialize. We are going to be more nurturing and loving than ever before. My life has completely changed. My attitude has completely changed from going through this. Now, Atish, if we, you know, if we switch gears of it, you are you are certainly a fighter, and this has not been the first battle that you have had courage to face. And what I want to do is is go way back first, um, uh, way back to 1970, when at the age of eight uh, you immigrated to Canada and you didn't yes. speak any English, and in fact you were demoted uh, right upon starting school in grade two for that reason. And you were at that time one of only a handful of South Asians. No one looked like you, no one talked like you. And this led to some very difficult early experiences for you, including being bullied, beaten up, witnessing people spit on your parents simply because of your race. Yeah. Now tell me how how you made sense of those experiences as a as a young child. Well as a young child, you know, coming from another country I didn't know what racism was. I, I you know, the, I, I didn't know. I thought we were just all human beings and living on this planet together. And it was, everything was new to me, right? Um, I think when I first came here, I, I, I thought that kids were kind of bullying me because of the fact that I didn't know how to speak English. So I really applied myself and, uh, and, and, and try to learn. And this is grade two now, grade one, 
you know, we just came to the, you know, last two months of the, of the year when we arrived here in March. And then grade two, I said, you know what, I'm going to make my dad proud. Um, I would see how my sisters and my brother used to always um, get angry at my dad and saying, oh, take us back home. We don't like it here. We want to go back to Fiji. You know, we don't like it here. Right. And my dad had struggled so much uh, to get us here, you know. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to make my dad proud. So I basically studied so hard and, and applied myself so much at the end of the year. Uh, I, and I got this diploma of the being my first in my class. And I'm sitting there in the auditorium on the floor. This is great too. Uh, the award ceremony is going on the last day of school and they call my name and I go up there and the teacher and the principal give me a little uh, award certificate, shook my hand and I looked at the audience. I looked at my students and I said, okay, now they're going to like me. I'm smart enough. Aww. They're going to like me. And I was so proud. And at that end of the day, I was going home and I was going home. I got, I got jumped with six guys and they started to beat me up and they started to hit me and they started to kick me. And I was down and then they urinated on me. Oh my goodness. Oh and they took the, the diploma that I had and they crumpled it up and there was a piece of, uh, that was ripped and left me there and then they spat on me and they left and then i at that point i realized you know i, I picked myself up brushed myself off took the uh, diploma ran home ran home right away went upstairs and showered real quickly and i started to iron the diploma because i was crumpled up so i ironed it thinking it'd be flat because my dad's gonna want to know right he's you know my my sisters and my brother are gonna tell them that atish got this uh, diploma or whatever right or this certificate for being excellent in school so I came downstairs and, and uh, didn't tell, tell anybody this. And my dad came home and, and he you know, popped me on his, on his lap and he says, oh, my God. And, and I showed him the diploma and he said, oh, my God, I'm so proud of you. That's the first time I actually saw my dad so happy. And, I, and he realized, OK, he did a good thing. And he was so proud of me. And then he asked me, because how come the, uh, the diploma is all crumpled up? I go, well, I just stuck it in my pocket. And I never told this to him. You never told it? So your parents never knew of, about that experience? Actually, it's the first time I'm telling this to anyone. Um, I did oh. tell my wife this, uh, you know, um, and my daughter this once before, but this is the first time I'm actually wow. speaking about it. And that actually, and then I, that's when I realized that it wasn't because of what I was on the inside. It was because of what, what I looked like on the outside that people were judging me. And that was my first experience with racism. My goodness, Atish. I mean, it's, it's so much admiration for you. And I just, I, you know, you're speaking and I'm getting this image of you as an eight-year-old. And mm -hmm. I think, my goodness, the tenacity that you had. And so what did you draw on? Like, what was it that... I needed to make my dad proud. I needed to make my dad realize that he is doing the right thing by bringing us here, right? And I learned this now because we just, you know, he passed away. Um, actually, to be honest with you, it was three years ago yesterday that actually I put him in his final resting place. Wow. So, so when I looked at his life, he was always proud of me, right? And I always lived my life to make him proud. I wanted to realize, I wanted him to know that what he did, you know, to get us here. And he applied to come to Canada seven times, right? I was actually was going through all his briefcases, and I saw 
his immigration papers and letters of, uh, and he kept to get denying. He kept get getting denied seven times, wow. right? So he struggled to get us here. And 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 the thing is, so I, I really want him wanted him to be proud of me, whatever I did. Yes, yeah, right? so that greater kind of external good, right? The, the yeah. external goal. And it sounds like the, the tenacity ran in your genes, didn't it? And and we think of the, the plight of many immigrant families, um, yeah. you know, particularly decades ago. Um, I mean, my goodness. Now, this, this certainly was not your first or last experience with racism. And let's fast forward. It carried on. Yeah, it carried on. And so so we'll fast forward to your early 20s. And, and like most young men, you wanted to buy a car. And so, so what do you do? You get three jobs. <laughs> and so, so you yeah. get three jobs. You're working at London Drugs, White Spot, and McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, you initially quit um, because you were robbed three times at McDonald's at gunpoint. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to, we've been robbed three times. Uh and it, 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 it was traumatic. It, it, the one of the last time that we got robbed was early in the morning, uh, when I had come in to open the store up, and and the uh, perpetrators were already in the store, and we got in and they locked us in the freezer, wow. and uh, and it you know it was minus ten degrees in the freezer, and uh, so that was kind of traumatic. Uh, mind you, at that point there was no counseling, nothing, you know, <laughs> to to support you. But anyways, the, the, that morning, the, 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 they got caught because uh, when they asked me to open the safe up and I opened the safe up and I just like this is my third time. So I opened the safe up, not thinking nothing. And they, they thought, oh, this is pretty easy. But I already been through it already. Right. So I gave him right. the money, but I put it in a McDonald's bag, you know, the McDonald's takeout bags. And I gave it to him and, and, how, and they got, how they got caught with the police was because they're walking up Nanaimo Street. This is Kingsway in Victoria. They're walking up Nanaimo Street and they basically um, uh, had this McDonald's bag and the police pulled them over and said, you know, where'd you get that food from? They said, oh, McDonald's. Well, how can you get the food when the McDonald's is not open yet? Uh, and they started to run. So, so oh. police told me they said you we did a really smart thing by giving putting the money bag in the McDonald's bag because that we were able to identify who they were, right? Oh my goodness! Now, now this, believe it or not, is not the most impactful or interesting no. story about your time at McDonald's because somehow you decide several years later at 22 to go back to work at McDonald's and and there you then experienced a string of discriminatory actions which culminated in you applying for but being denied a managerial position and ultimately being fired and this yeah. propelled you to file a legal case and so tell me Atish about that experience and also how at such a young age, you had so much courage to challenge such a massive entity. I mean, really an institution such mm. as McDonald's. Well, you know, throughout my early years, at the age of 16 is when I got the, or 15 when I got a job at McDonald's uh, as, you know, burger flipper, right? And through those years, from the time, the three years from 1979 until 1981 is basically when I worked there and I was a crew person. And they would always, um, you know, there was a lot of discrimination, a lot of, you know, open derogatory names that were given to me, right? You know, black man, chocolate, whatever. And, and, and one of the things that really, really upset me was when I got promoted to a crew chief and, and it was the, uh, a, a, a um, what do you call it, a crew meeting that was going on. And they promoted me and they gave me a T-shirt and a T-shirt, a black T-shirt. And in white letters, it was written white man. 
And they, yeah. they presented this to me in public and they said, amongst my peers and my, my crew, and they said, well, now you're an official white man. And I'm thinking like, what, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean that I'm an official white man? Like, am I being accepted now? Right. I still have that T-shirt to this day. Never wore it, but really? I still have it. Yeah. What and, was the intent? I mean, did you? I don't know what the intent was. I think it was just mocking me. Wow. Uh, it was just, you know, another way of them to mock me, you know, that uh, and to remind me that I'm different. And here's somebody that had this, you know, when I was that eight year old boy kind of thing. Oh, well, you know, I made it here, but with a consequence, you know. So, you know, I got my, you know, I, I'm smart enough, but you're not good enough for society mm. because you're colored. Right. Or now you are a crew chief. Now you're promoted. You can be like us, but you're still not good enough. So you're going to wear this T-shirt that says white man on it to to have you be accepted. And that didn't that didn't feel right to me. And I kind of brushed it off. And that was one of the reasons. But and then the, the robbery and everything was, you know, why am I doing this? Am I going to put my life in danger for this for this company? You know, that's just treating me like this, you know, and and then. I real and then there was a void and I and, and a couple of, and I went I fell into depression a little bit. I said, you know what? I really love working at McDonald's because I love being around people. Mm. So maybe I can go back and change things, right? And I went back uh, uh, and got hired as a manager. And this uh, uh, and I and, and I did really worked hard. And it was again very difficult. Now I'm at management level. Now I'm getting um, derogatory comments from my peers. And they would call me buckwheat. They call me chocolate. They call me, you know, all sorts of names. Um, and they wouldn't even refer to me as Atish. So these are my managers. These are my peers. Wow. These are my uh, bosses that were calling me that. And I was having a real hard time getting respect for my crew. So I'm a, I'm a manager and I'm trying to control my shift. And I'm trying to, uh, you know, tell my employees what they need to do and everything. But they're not listening to me because I'm a joke. Right. right? Because, you know, so it was a very big struggle. And I, and I worked hard and I tried to get promoted and I, and I was up for promotion many times. You know, I remember I worked at Expo 86 um, when, the, when the fair was going on. And then the manager, my supervisor said to me, you know, if you can pull this together, if you can turn the store from an F to an A, uh, we'll promote you. And I did. I went back and I turned the store from an F to an A and then they gave the promotion to somebody else. Mm. Right. So it was it was it was it was just on and on and on. And, then, and I started getting sick. It was psychosomatic. It was really, um, this whole racism thing was really bothering me. And I'm trying to struggle to get somewhere in the, in, and I know I was doing a great job and I know I was doing an excellent job because I, the results were there, but I wasn't getting promoted. And here again, back to that eight-year-old kid, you know, you work so hard and you've got this little certificate that says that you're number one in class, but you're not good enough because you're the color of your skin. And that's exactly what I was facing when I was, you know, at this age of 20. You're absolutely right. Our body tells a story, doesn't it? And when we have yeah. those kinds of experiences, we internalize and it and it comes out in all kinds of ways. Um, now we fast forward. What happens is you ultimately get fired and make the decision to pursue a case. And now this I found fascinating is you and and to the listeners, we're allowed to talk about all of this is public yes. domain. And so so McDonald's comes to you and and. 20, 29 years ago today is when the case yes. got settled, right? Yes. And and so they want to come initially settle the case for $2,000. You say, no, thank you. They come back a week before the trial. They offer you $30,000. You say, no, thank you. Um, they come back the night before the trial. 
They offer you 60,000. You still say no. On the day of the trial, you're offered $100,000, which is nothing to shy away from, especially 29 years ago, and you still refuse. So you could tell the story. Well, the thing was, I needed to, it wasn't that I was fired. It was because I, I, I was, I got sick. I got really, I, this was taking so much toll on my body, this whole stress and everything that I kept going back to the hospital. I kept getting abdominal pains and I kept getting sick. So I was, I was getting quite sick quite often. And at one point I remember when I started applied for a disability, the human resources manager that was there and they were denying my, uh, my disability claim, long-term disability claim. And they were saying that, you know, this is a recurring illness. And I said, well, I don't understand why I'm getting sick like this. I was having all these medical problems and uh, they go, well, it's reoccurring. I said, well, you can't make that decision. It's up to the doctors to make that decision. Right. And he goes to me, he goes, all you little Hindus want is insurance money. Wow. And, and this is the, this is a uh, human resources manager. Of McDonald's at the same time. Wow! Wow! And then I and and I and I hung up the phone. I said, "Okay, well, here we go again. This is an uphill battle." And that was the pivotal point. At this point, I said, "You know." And then finally, when I was able to go back, I I, I asked to go back to work. And the supervisors, my supervisor, said, "You know, well, we don't need you back. I, you know, you're not good enough um, in life. You're only going to succeed. You you might as well just be a security guard because that's as far as you're going to go in life." My goodness! Right. So essentially, constructive dismissal, right? Is what yeah, exactly. this, this that's, translates that's what into. But then I wrote a letter to the the president of McDonald's, and I asked him why why am I being let go, and you know what's the reason? And he brushed it off. And then finally, I decided to I, I didn't get an answer from them, so I decided to file a employment standards case. So. Um, to find out. And then at that point, uh, they, I, they, they said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I just want a face-to-face meeting with them. I just want to see what, I want to know their reason behind this, right? And I wanted to express my, and they they did set up a meeting like three months later, I had a meeting and McDonald's had a representative that they sent and, and I got pretty much pissed off. And I said, you guys are not listening to what I'm trying to say. This is, you know, you want, you don't want to hear my real story. And I kind of just blurted it out. I said, well, this is what's going on. And at that point, the human resources manager that was there, the actual uh, uh, mediator that was there, Mark Hale, he pulled me in a room afterwards. He goes, you know, T, she goes, you have a human rights complaint. And I go, what is that? And he explained to me what human rights was. Mm. He said, I'd like to investigate it. And I said, okay. And then he went on to investigate. And it was a couple of years of investigation and finally, I filed it. And when I even filed the human rights complaint, the person that was taking the complaint said, you know what? She goes, the chances of you getting this case is going to be one in 1,500. Wow. Right? I said, okay, well, you know, I have to. I, it was me, my way of expressing all that stuff that I had inside me. I needed to let it out. So it was an uphill battle. Um, finally, they did accept the claim. And it, it, they wrote a letter and basically they informed McDonald's that this is what's going on. They decided to offer me $2,000. said, oh, we'll just give him $2,000 because that's the maximum he's going to get anyways. And I said, no, I don't want to. I need you guys to hear me. Mm-hmm. I need you guys to hear my, what I have to say. I don't care about the money. I need to tell you guys what you guys are doing, what I've experienced, right? And they just brushed it off. And then I went to 11 different lawyers to fight my case and no lawyer would take my case, except for this one guy, Larry Myers. He was a little Jewish guy. And he took my case and he said, I know what it, what racism is all about. My grand, great-grandparents had gone through Holocaust 
and I understand. And he says, I'll take your case. And he did it for pro bono. Wow. And he said, we'll fight these bastards, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, and he said, let's do it. And this would be a three-year-long case. And this case, basically, um, they started offering you money to buy me out. I said, no, no, no. We were broke. I hadn't worked for three three months. My wife and I had just gotten married. So we had, we, we were in debt by $30,000. And I could have easily took that money, Jyoti. Mm-hmm. I could have well, easily m- took that Most money. people would have, right? You yeah. look at the odds and you think one out of 1,500, most people would say, take this 100,000 and yeah. walk. And yet the yeah. principle is what, what drove you, Atish, to say well, no. Well, the night before, it was November 10th, was when the first trial was going to go on. And the night before, uh, my wife and I, my lawyer phoned me and said, listen, Atish, they've offered you $60,000 and I suggest you take it. And I said, no, but they're not admitting to guilt. He goes, well, they are kind of admitting to guilt because, um, you know, they're giving you the money, right? And I said, well, am I going to be able to talk about this experience with anybody? And he says, well, no, that's going to be part of the condition. You won't be able to talk about this to anybody. You know, it's going to be a gag order or whatever. And I I said, okay, well, let me think about it, right? And I looked at my wife and Mandy looked at me and she said, Atish, she said, this, is this what you want? I said, no, it's not what I want. This is, it's, this is blood money. I don't want it. Mm. I want to, I need, people to hear my story. I need people to identify with what I had gone through so they can, this doesn't happen to somebody else again, right? And it doesn't matter. I'll make my money. I'm 24 years old. I'll, 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 I've got a long life ahead of me, right? You know, but I cannot be bought out. And the next morning we went to court and McDonald's had their, their uh, executives there and they brought me into the room thinking that I was going to, you know, basically sell my soul. And they offered me the money. There was a check there for me. And they said, sign these documents, which was like, but, you know, a, a folder thick. And I said, no, I said, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to lose. I have a lot to say. So let's go in there and, 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 and have it out. And I went and, and I went in there and they tried to throw the trial. They tried to you know, all sorts of things, whatever. They had five lawyers. I had one little lawyer. Uh, the trial lasted three years, close to three years. Um, they tried to, you know, at the end of the trial, I had five lawyers. They had only one lawyer. They had 30 witnesses against me. Oh, I had five witnesses. So they played all these kind of tactic games and everything, whatever, trying to discredit me. And I said, no, I, you know, if I'm telling the truth, I'm the, telling the truth and the truth is going to prevail. It's going to come out. Right. And eventually you, you, for the record, won the case, you got paid $2,000 and, and because of your determination, I have to ask about this to refuse the large sums of money. Um, you received an invitation to attend the Oprah Winfrey show, but you refused that as well. So, so may I ask how the heck do you say no to Oprah? Well, what happened was when the papers came out and my lawyer phoned me and they said, at this point I was working for London drugs uh, in the camera department and, and the paper came out and I remember going to work and um, the the trial ended in May and the decision came down in in December. Right. And basically I went to work and I, I walked in there at nine o'clock in the morning, of course, the, they carried the province newspaper, right? And the employees started clapping. And I said, what? And there, were, there I was in the front page of the province, wow. right? McDonald's pays for racial slurs. Um, and just to, on a note of that, the $2,000 that I got was would be the following April. It took them you know, five months to give me that money. And when they did give me that money, I decided to donate it to the Cancer Society because my lawyer at the time, his daughter, Chloe, had leukemia. And I said, you know, this is blood money. I don't need this money. I didn't do it for the money. So I donated it to Cancer Society. So I never took any of that money. And that was my first 
feel good about philanthropy. That was that really felt good doing that. made incredible contributions through your dedication to charity work, including your prominent role as the person behind BC Children's Hospital, A World of Smiles Telethon. Um, now, this dedication comes from, among other things, your your own family's experience of adversity. And in 1996, your son, Ryan, was born with a rare congenital condition called torticollis, um, a condition for our listeners where one side of the, the body's muscles grow and the other doesn't. Um, and so tell me, Tell me about that moment when you and your wife, Mandy, first learned Ryan had this condition and, and how you evolved that into really a passion project. It's funny how you, you, you're dwelled into situations and you don't know why you put in there, but then later on you find out why, right? So a year before that, I started the show called Zindagi, uh, which you were, you were aware of. And the reason I did the Zindagi show is because when I did that case for McDonald's, there was the South Asian community did not take it to you know like they didn't want to publicize it they were you know shy about i don't know what their reasons was but you know but it did come out on the Oprah winfrey show and everything i mean and, and to, to answer that question why i didn't go on the show is when the when the papers came out i started getting a lot of threats i was getting a phone calls and threats and i was actually even shot at through my window so i got really scared for my safety and that's why i didn't want to do any kind of media stuff uh-huh. i just wanted to lay low but few years later, I decided to create a media, which was a TV show called Zindagi. And I wanted to do the show in English. And I wanted to have uh, everybody see what our culture is all about. That We wake up in the morning and we have coffee and toast just like everybody else. Right. And then from that is when we had our son and uh, and he had this condition and we were taking him to BC Children's Hospital for physiotherapy for nine months. And And I decided, I said, you know, God, you know, I, I remember going down, up and down the hallway and, and praying and, and, and seeing other patients and with their grandparents, reading a book to them and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, you know what? This is, everybody's wanting the same thing. It's a miracle. And I, I kind of looked up and I said, God, if you can, you know, if you can help my son get better, you know, I'll do anything you want, right? Just, just ask and I'll do it, right? And a, a few weeks later, I got his phone call and I had just been a new producer for the television with Zindagi and everything. And I got a call from Rogers at the time, was uh, was the broadcaster. And they said, you know, we want to have a meeting with you. And they told me to where to go. And and uh, uh, the next day I went to this meeting at nine o'clock and it was actually the Children's Hospital site. I said, well, wait a minute, I've been here before. Oh, geez. <laughs> you know? And, and I walked to the boardroom and, and I sat there and they said, we want, you know, you're just energetic producer and everything. You've got some great ideas, you know, you know, we'd like you to do a telethon. And the only thing I knew about the telethon was the Jerry Lewis telethon that I used to watch as a kid. Right. Oh, of and course. The, <laughs> and, the, and the variety club that used to happen every on, in February. So I, I remember the concept of a telethon and they said, we'd like you to do a telethon to raise money for children's hospital. And a little light bulb in my head went off and I said, well, there's my calling. Mm-hmm. that's what I asked God to do. And this is what I've been chosen to do. My, my prayers have been answered. My son just celebrated his 24th birthday four days ago, mm-hmm. right? He's doing amazing. He's doing great. I'm sitting here being thankful for getting the opportunity. And then I started creating the telethon. I said, well, we want to do this live. And it was still a struggle trying to get the telethon going and stuff like that. We did have a lot of bumps along the way with like anything in life. We always have a lot of bumps along the way, but we succeeded. And uh, and I became kind of the ambassador and 
dedicated my whole life to uh, to Children's Hospital, and we've done you know my now my son and my daughter is a is a a, a chair for the youth committee. Uh, my two boys do a, a, an annual event called Hoops for Kids. Uh, they get involved with the kids. They get little kids involved. They do a, a three on three basketball tournament, and we do various events. Uh, my daughter just did. Uh, um, hot chocolate for to raise money for insurance hospital, free hot chocolate from a, a cafe. You know, so they're doing all these things. We never gave up. We just keep giving back. Oh, because, and you must be so just beaming proud to see your children continue your legacy, which has been ultimately passed down from your family. Yes, you know my dad. I, you know, and, and going to my back to my dad. I remember we used to have these odd jobs. He he worked as a heavy duty mechanic, and the evenings we would go and clean offices in in um, you know North Vancouver where the shipyards were, and he, he would pick up. Uh, these people that had come from the ship from India and, and these guys would be walking, he'd pick them up and he'd take them, bring them to our house. And my mom would make roti and everything for them and feed them. And then he would drive them back. And I would see that. And I'd say, well, why dad, why are you doing this? He, he goes, you got to help your uh, other human beings. You got to help these guys were in the, on a ship for three months. And, you know, and so I learned the art of giving through my dad because he was so generous and he accepted everybody at, at face value, you know, and, and wanted to help everybody. Right. You know, and that's kind of what I've been doing is I, I don't say no to anybody. I've helped a lot of these uh, young girls that have been on my show and they've become very successful actors and broadcasters, you know, like, um, and, and, and anchors and radio hosts. Um, and so it's, 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 it's for me, I'm very proud to see anybody that I've mentored be successful. Anybody that I've helped, beat cancer or beat whatever, you know, it's, it's very, I, I, I can't explain the feeling it is when you give back to somebody and when you do something for somebody and they are good and they're well, and you see the success in them. I'm one of the guys that thrives on other people's success. Yeah. Well, I hear that loud and clear, my goodness, in every aspect of your life. And, you know, you know, interesting when we look on the, the literature on giving, right. We know the giver, experiences as much benefit as the recipient and and you think of paying it forward and you know whatever in bob ross's famous words right the happy accidents that happen in life that have paved the path for you to be where you are there's a beautiful quote um that uh, you have stated which i want to want to echo back to you right now where you've said everybody has a reason to be on this earth there is a big master plan. Money is just not everything, but giving back to the community, that is my passion. Yes. Yes, that's that's so true. And I think one of the things I look back at, and somebody had told me this just recently when I came out of the hospital, um, and I remember uh, I went to the temple, uh, um, I think it was during Diwali, uh, and, and I went to the temple and there was maybe about 10 people there. We were all social distancing, whatever. And the priest goes, you know, just to give thanks. Right. And the priest goes to me, he said, you know what? He goes, you went to God, God sent you back because he wasn't done with you yet. So of all the good that you've done, this is your reward to get, you know, you got a lot more to do. And I believe that. And I really believe the fact that I'm here today was because a lot of the prayers from people, kindness from people that that really prayed for me. Um, there was time that I didn't think that I was going to make it, but the power of prayers, you know, uh, and, and the power of the people that appreciate you 
for what you've done for them is what keeps you going. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? But you got to hold on to the ones that are really, really near and dear to you and the ones that really, really value your friendship in your life. Absolutely. Well, we're we're fundamentally social creatures, aren't we? And and we mm-hmm. can um, move through tremendous adversity when we have those rich, deep, authentic, uh, reciprocal relationships in our life, don't we? And and I mean, they instill the motivation um, and hope when we feel we can't go on, um, and just such a critical part of an overall resilient life, right? Psychologically and physically. Now, Atish, I, my goodness, I have so much admiration for the many ways that you've demonstrated resilience um, in situations and circumstances when many would throw in the towel, right? And take the easier path. Um, My question to you in closing for our listeners is for anyone in the midst of anything, whether it is um, a workplace that is discriminating, whether it is a difficult health circumstance, whether it is another family or other situation that is taxing you, what are your best words of advice on how people can cultivate their resilience? You know, life is a struggle and, you know, um, internally it's a struggle. Uh, you know, your life could look fine and dandy on the outside with social media and Facebook and everything, but people have internal struggles. You can't give up. You have to believe in yourself and who you are and you can't give up because the sun rises every day you may not see it every day but it rises every day right so you're gonna have some cloudy days but you're gonna have some bright days right just be thankful and grateful for the fact that you wake up to see another day if you are grateful for what you have rather than what you want your life will change and the path will automatically you know some of the things i can't even explain how i've gotten here Right. But I did get here and I'm excited for the next chapter in my life. You know, Uh, well, what is next for you, Atish? And what can we look forward to seeing from you? I I don't know what what, what's uh, what's next for me. Again, I'm still struggling with my health. I'm still struggling with breathing. I my my I hope to be recovered 100 percent so I can start producing stories and start doing uh, what I really, really love is is, is capturing, uh, you know, moments and telling stories. I'd like to do some more documentaries and some more film work and everything and, 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 and share my stories through my skill that I've, you know, that I've got the gift that I've got has given me is to be able to tell the stories through my vision of, you know, camera work and, and editing and film. Right. I'd like to do that. But, in, but right now, I we, we got to get through this pandemic. My attitude in life is like, you know what? Uh, you know, treat everybody equally as the way you want to be treated. I know this is a cliche. You've heard that before. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just, you know, just carry on with your life and just appreciate what you have and, and your family and what you have in your life, right? Um, who knows what what's in for me? But I know there's great things. 
Right. Well, I, I know there are too. And Atish, thank you so much for sharing your story here today with us and our listeners. Um, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into Tardigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources designed to help you enhance your psychological health and wellness on our website, tardigradetalks.com. Thank you, and I hope you join us at the next episode. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time.